0: This is Purple Radio On Demand.
1: Hello listeners and welcome to episode 5 of Disability Discussions. I'm here today with a very lovely guest, if you'd like to introduce yourself.
0: Hi, I'm Benjamin Southwick. My pronouns are he, they. I'm a second year music student at Stevenson College.
1: Nice. And do you want to talk a little bit more about kind of your disability and your list of disabilities, if you have one?
0: Yeah, um, so... I have various disabilities, my main ones being I have carpal tunnel syndrome in my dominant hand which makes writing, typing, all of the stuff that you need to do at university kind of a little bit more difficult. I also have a heart condition called POTS or postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome which most people don't know an awful lot about but is actually surprisingly common amongst younger people, sort of people between about uh, 15 and 25 in the UK. It's for some reason, suddenly become a lot more prevalent. And particularly with COVID and everything, it's been noted as an illness that you can get after contracting COVID uh, and not realise it, basically. So, yeah. And I also have um, dyspraxia, which more often than not just means I bump into things quite a lot. Um, and I'm a little bit uncoordinated. coordinated but otherwise, yeah. And I have I, I'm neurodiverse as well. And I have various mental health issues, but yeah. Yeah. so quite a lot of things but
1: yeah because going back to I think you said it was pot I remember I looked this up on the NHS website because I didn't know that much about it and it sounds like some of the kind of more frequent side effects was things like dizziness or like lightheadedness and they also say it's more common around periods so I feel like that would be very easily misdiagnosed as just uh oh you have like low iron that would be something you... that people could definitely get misdiagnosed mm, mm,
0: yeah oh absolutely um and people often because it's Like it gets, for me at least, and for quite a lot of people, it gets worse when the weather's warmer. When it's hotter, you get hotter, which means your heart has to work faster, basically. And so people think, oh, it's just you spent too much time out in the sun. You just need to have some water and have a lie down and you'll be fine. But there is a little bit more to it than that. So basically the way it works is that when you go from sitting to standing, your heart rate is meant to adjust. So it's doing more work to get you from sitting to standing, which means that it's got to go up in speed a little bit. For most people, that's not an issue. And that just happens. For people like me, rather than it going up a little bit, it can often double, for instance. And when that happens, the spike in heart rate means that your blood pressure drops, which means you're more likely to get dizzy, pass out, that kind of thing. Um, But it's got quite a lot of symptoms that are kind of just associated with being a young adult in the world at the moment so like chronic fatigue general tiredness general just not feeling entirely with it also dizziness the sort of chronic exhaustion almost because and this didn't click with me for a really long time but like my heart is actually going faster than most other people's hearts So therefore, it's using more energy, which is why I am tired all the time. Yeah. Um, But it wasn't something that clicked with me until I until like a couple of years after I got diagnosed. But um, I was struggling with it whilst I was doing my GCSEs and people were just telling me, oh, it's just stress because you're doing your exams and things. You know, they're saying we know that you don't like exams. But you just need to kind of get over yourself and that kind of thing, which is really not helpful. Um, And it took a long time for me to get diagnosed. I'd say uh, probably about four years, all in all, just because I'd go to the GP and say I'm passing out all the time, and they'd be like, "Okay, well, let's see if you're anemic. You're not anemic. We don't know what to do with you now." Um, And it was just like a repeated cycle of that. And they would say, "Oh, are you going through a particularly stressful time at the moment?" and doing exams, existing in the world as it currently is, is quite a stressful experience, you know, for most people regardless. And they were just often of the impression that it would just be, it would go away if if some of the stresses went away or if I stopped caring so much about the stresses and that kind of thing. Um, But it, it hasn't, but it has got better. So there are lots of ways you can treat it and you can manage it. But it affects people in different ways. Like for me, it often means that I am very, very tired and I don't function in quite the same like normal nine to five that most people do. So my day can often look like it's been like shifted along by about three or four hours just because I function better in the afternoon and the evening when I've had a bit more sleep and time to rest. But yeah, there's also a really good charity called POTS UK who do a lot of awareness and fundraising and things, Um, and they've got a really informative Instagram page and website. So if you are listening and you are struggling with feeling tired all the time and maybe feeling dizzy and passing out, there are people that can support you, even if your GP is being a bit useless, because the most common thing that people with POTS say is that yeah it took me seven or eight years to get diagnosed just because my GP didn't believe that this was something that was you know actually happening but that I mean that's common with quite a lot of other chronic illnesses as well.
1: Yeah it seems like from the side effects they kind of range from like slight dizziness to complete passing out if you even stand up so obviously if you have that extreme the people who are on the lower end are going to be like hey like I'm just a bit dizzy it's fine and it's very easy to kind of just pass along through the system yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, the number of people who I've spoken to who are like, oh, I didn't realize it wasn't normal to, like, feel dizzy every time that you stood up and things. I, You know, they say, oh, I just thought everyone experienced that. I thought it was just completely normal. And then they go and like they actually go and get their heart rate checked and things. And it turns out that they've got pots and they had no idea.
1: Yeah I think that's quite a common occurrence is when you start looking at other people's experiences and you're like wait especially with things like anxiety I know I spoke to someone else and they were saying they didn't realize that average person didn't just feel anxious all the time and they were like ah yeah. oh, this isn't normal and I think that tends to be quite a common thing is once once you start looking into it you're like wait I do all these things and they're saying that that's not normal but because you only have your lived experience so you don't know what's meant to be going on in the minds of other people.
0: Oh absolutely yeah I mean I didn't really understand a lot of my various disabilities until I was able to talk to somebody else who had them and it was fantastic to be able to go oh i do this this is the this is the same thing that you do and this is because of your disability it was so nice to have like a reason a concrete reason that said okay this is this is why this happens to me and it's not just like completely random
1: yeah. Okay. And then Carpal Tunnel is quite an interesting because I always hear about kind of artists and people getting it. Like, I read kind of web tunes and I know that's obviously an online kind of like mm-hmm. style. So a lot of people kind of take time off because they start getting really like sore wrists from writing and everything. For you, was it based off of CD music? Was it based off of kind of overpractice, overwork, or was it just something that you have and it gets worse? Uh,
0: so I broke my upper arm when I was i think about 9 or 10 and basically what happened is as far as i was uh i was told is that i didn't have any physio for it at all um so my arm broke you can't put it in a cast because it's so high it was so up, high up my arm so i just had my arm in a sling for i think 6 weeks and then like gently trying to get back into doing things so that happened and then I didn't have any physio or any support and lots of the scar tissue from the break sort of migrated its way down my arm and into, into my wrist. Cause the carpal tunnel is, is basically this little, uh, well, tunnel, funnily enough, um, in your wrist that's just hollow and full of lots of nerves basically. And stuff can get stuck in there. Um, and when stuff gets stuck in there, the nerves get more sensitive, they find it harder to communicate information accurately, um, so you can end up with like numbness and pain and things. But also being a musician, I was a pianist, um, and I had to take, I think, three or four years off playing completely.
1: Yeah, which like, would put you behind quite a bit, which is really massively, sad.
0: Massively yeah. behind. Um it got to a point where I couldn't even touch a piano keyboard like just putting my hands in the position to play was too painful um and then I couldn't I couldn't handwrite anything uh my handwriting got you you can see if you look at some of my um like old Exercise books and things you can see like the progression in my handwriting going from oh that's perfectly legible to this could have been written in another language and you would have no idea. Yeah. Um, and then I move to typing as well. But the issue is is that literally any movement using your fingers or your wrist is going to make it worse. So either you stop doing everything which is virtually impossible when you are in the education system or you try and make things work. So for a long time, I used to um, type exclusively with my left hand. Um, and being being a pianist, I've got a really long reach in my hand, so I can reach from one side of the keyboard to the other um, without thinking about it just because it's it's like a piano keyboard but squished um and I can do that in my left hand and it's fine but I can't really do that with my right hand at all um uh but yeah it wasn't really from it wasn't like I was the kind of person that would practice like six or eight hours a day or anything I did just do yeah
1: it was just bad healing from a a, an accident which is really no one's or not your fault at least
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, which is a bit frustrating, but so I still can't really play piano. Um, I've tried playing other instruments and some of them are okay. So I, um, I'm a percussionist now, which rather than using lots of finger movements, uses lots of arm and wrist movements. Yeah. Um, which is so much better and, Often it feels quite a lot like going to physio because the movements I'm doing are loosening up all of my joints. So it feels like quite, um, quite a restorative thing to do. Um, but I can't really play the piano very much anymore. I can use it as a, like a, a composition tool to aid my studies, but I couldn't like give a recital, for instance. That's just out of my reach now
1: yeah so what instruments do you play then in your degree just the the drums and like cymbals and things
0: so i don't take any performance modules for my degree but um i am a i am the principal percussionist of uh dupo the palatina orchestra um so i play with them quite a lot uh, which is really good fun um and that's mainly mainly playing um Symbols, bass drum, uh, snare drum, tuned percussion as well, which is things like xylophone, glockenspiel, um, marimba. Uh, I'm, I, I marimba is my favorite because it's just like a big keyboard and it's really, really good fun. And it's very satisfying to play percussion because like you hit it and it makes a noise. And there's just something about that that process it's incredibly satisfying to me so it's a really good thing to do Um, but I also conduct um, and that is the one thing that I have found that doesn't cause me any pain and I find quite quite straightforward and quite easy to do so um, I'm the director of music of uh, St Cuthbert Society Choir Um, and we do like one service a week and one rehearsal a week. Um and that's really good for me because it's being able to create music um but without having to put any physical pressure on my hands at all because I'm just waving my arms about in the air, um, which is really great. Um just because the the pressure from like pressing down a key or or touching something in a music is in a musical way is quite difficult generally. Um So to be able to still be involved in the music making process is fantastic just because in my degree I mainly do um, the theory of music, the history of music, that kind of thing um and composition which is very much less about, you know, hearing something that you are an active part in. Um, but it's fantastic to just be able to do that. And it's in, they're, they're really good. Um, for me particularly, because I often, um, I often use a walking stick because it just makes my life a lot easier. Um, um, when I do, there's always space to have a break halfway through a rehearsal, sit down. There's always a, an opportunity to make sure that you can look after yourself. Um, and our president, um, Zoe Claire Solomon, is fantastic because um, she's so aware of what, you know, how stressful university can be, particularly if you have any kind of mental or physical health issues. Um, And it's always, you know, you come first, the choir comes second, which I don't think is the attitude with a lot of ensembles here at Durham. And it's really refreshing to just be like, I know that I can take some time for myself. And I'm not going to have the retribution from the rest of the ensemble saying, oh, but, you know, I've got things due. Why can't I take some time off? Yeah, yeah. And it's just really nice it's a good environment
1: yeah lovely because you're also so you do you're the director of music for Cath's um Mm -hmm. chapel choir you're the president of steve-o's music society and then you also are the chair of durham's music edi committee is that your like course edi
0: no so um music durham operate um separately from the degree So they basically coordinate all of the music ensembles that happen in Durham. So any of the choirs, any of the orchestras, like if there are people playing music together, it will have to have been organised in some way through Music Durham. Um, So. uh, My role in that has been chairing their EDI committee. um, And one of the things I've been trying to do is to get more diverse works performed in Durham. Because at the moment, or at least until very recently, it was mainly the same sort of five or six dead white European guys that were always getting the airtime at concerts. Um, And most people were saying, you know, oh, it's expensive to do diverse repertoire. It's really difficult to find it. So I said, okay, sure. if if that's what you think fine Um, and then I'll go and find you some free music that is easy to access you can print the parts so that you don't have to like pay for new copies or anything and that's really helped because just being able to say to an ensemble hey I know that you are looking for something a bit interesting to do here is a resource and you can go and find something interesting for you to do. Or if there isn't something on there that suits you, then email me and I can give you a hand looking for something. And that's worked really well. Um, I've worked particularly closely with Duce, the classical ensemble, um, who are doing a fantastic, um, concert with just just really nice to see lots of diverse repertoire it's not just the same few white dead European guys basically um yeah and it's nice to have had a part in that um particularly in in choral music it's a big big problem um because women weren't allowed into the church to sing for a very long time. In fact, there are still some cathedrals in the UK that don't allow women at all in their choirs. Um, So it's great to, for me as a director of music and as a non-binary director of music, um, to go into this choir and say, okay, it's International Women's Day on the 8th of March. Why don't we celebrate it all term? Why don't we try and get as much music by uh, women as we can so for me that was a, a really interesting task to be like okay I want to make this interesting for the singers interesting for me but it's also got to be like manageable so that we can make sure that people are singing stuff that they know so that it's not too difficult but also people are trying new things so I managed to achieve that with over 70% of our repertoire this term being uh by a woman which was really really big uh achievement um and it's made such a huge difference actually in terms of the choir themselves because each actually particularly the women in the choir have come up to me and said oh it's so nice to be performing music that's not by just you know the same five or six guys um and it's really nice to just do something a bit more interesting. Um, so it's great to... It's great to be able to give people an opportunity to see themselves in the music they perform, and that is just so important. And that is, that's what I feel like my role as EDI chair is, is to say, I know that various people here don't feel represented by uh, the music scene, and that is because there are a series of systemic, classist, racist, sexist issues. Um, but we can start to work at that. And it it seems slightly ridiculous that it is 2022 and we're having to start just by getting women into the music scene. You know, it's like it's such a low bar, but it's been a massive problem for um, well, since music really began in the west uh of access and making sure that everything is equal to to everyone that everyone has the same opportunities to compose and get into music,
1: yeah, that sounds really good, obviously, with um music, there's just so many different choirs and kind of places to form, there just seems like there's nonstop something going on, um pretty much yeah yeah. And I know that you recently did you you did the music for a play, like When the Bees Come, is that the right name?
0: Yeah, yeah, I did. That was so much fun. Um I have never so I was producer on that show, um co-producer, and I also wrote some of the music for it. Um and I had never written music for stage and I'd never produced anything before, so it was really quite a baptism of fire, but it was really good fun. And particularly great for me because so the play is about Hestia, who is trans non-binary and the amount of just that fact that there is a play featuring somebody who's trans, who is non-binary. And that is on the stage in Durham. That's a huge thing for me personally, but also for the wider scene in Durham, because it's just fantastic to see. Something a little bit different uh generally, but it was great because it wasn't just cis people who were involved. The person who wrote it is trans our main character was played by Georgia Malkin, who's also trans uh and it was really nice, like it felt like such a welcoming environment to to be in, just to be not afraid to express certain views Um, because particularly at Durham it can feel very difficult to know what you can and can't say around certain people particularly in reference to gender and it's incredibly welcoming to have such a great atmosphere and be like I know that I can say My identity here, I know that I can say what my pronouns are and I can correct somebody if somebody uses the wrong pronouns for, you know, literally anyone. And I know that it is not going to result in some kind of conflict, which seems like quite a a low level demand from society. But actually, it's the kind of thing that most people just don't don't give you and most people don't realize that they're not giving it to you but it particularly at Durham it's it as a trans person it can feel very much like you're quite isolated demonized and not really wanted here when in actual fact all of us are cont- contributing to the diversity of Durham in so many ways like whether it be through our extra curricular activities or whether it be through the work we do in our degree or the work we do with associations um, or even just being visible and being like yes I am trans, I am a Durham student and there's nothing wrong with that, I'm very happy to be here. Um, It would be so great if there could be more realisation from cis people that it's, it's hard to be trans And we should be celebrated. You know, we don't exist to try and make anyone else's life more difficult or anything. And we just want to sit here, do our degree. And go home at the end of the day and have some pasta like everyone else, we're not we're not that different you know, if, like if some people just spent five minutes speaking to us about something that isn't our gender, they might just realise, oh, look, these are people too, you know?
1: Yeah, I think that definitely applies um, even more so to obviously non-gender conforming trans people, because people have a real issue with non-conformity.
0: <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. And like, I know that I'm very lucky because quite often I present in a very masculine way. So I know the amount of Uh, sort of social privilege I get as a result of that and it's nice to be able to like participate in a conversation without worrying that somebody's going to be like oh well you shouldn't be saying that because you look like this kind of thing.
1: Yeah and I think tying that back to disabilities obviously that's the same thing with people who do have invisible disabilities being able to go under the radar do their day and not really have to worry whereas if you have a visible disability you're not so lucky.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, so over, over the course of the various lockdowns, my disability have got worse. Um, and I went from needing to use a walking stick maybe like uh, once a month if I was just having a bad day um, to using it pretty much every day now. And the way that people treat me in conversation has definitely changed. Just because they can see that I'm disabled and they don't think that I should be inhabiting the same space that they are. Um, And it's really interesting to see how people, people never look at you first. They always look at your mobility aid. They always look at my walking stick and then look at my face when they meet me. And yes, I am disabled, but that is not all of me. You know, I'm still a, a human capable of conscious thought intelligent thought I can do things and some people seem to just treat us particularly if you're very visible with your disability like you are incredibly fragile and quite frankly I know myself better than anyone else so if I'm out in public and I'm doing something chances are I don't need any help and if I do I'll ask for it um, and I think the the worst thing about being slightly more um, visible is people being like, oh, well, you must need help doing this because you are out and about. And it's like, no, I don't. And my experience at Durham has been pretty good. Generally, I haven't had too much of a of a difficult time with, with my disability. Um, my department have been really supportive, which has been incredibly helpful. And I know for a fact that that isn't the case at every department in the university, but mine have been very good when I've said I need an extension for something or I'm not going to make it to lectures in person, which I haven't haven't been to a lecture in person uh, the entire time I've done my degree. Um, And my department said, yeah, that's absolutely fine. Don't worry about it. We can just call you in and everything and that's fine. But I know that, particularly for STEM subjects, it's definitely not like that, and lecturers aren't quite as uh, as willing or, yeah, just willing to be uh, accommodating. At least that's that's what I've heard from other people I know in in STEM.
1: Yeah, I find with maths it's been fine because they pre-record all mm. the the lectures anyway because we have a lot of international students that aren't in the country oh, okay so in that case I don't like going in person lectures I find them a lot easier to do online because I can have the notes up and I can go at it at my own pace which for me makes a lot more sense but Absolutely. obviously not everyone kind of would agree with that but in that case with them being pre-recorded obviously that's super easy but I have found there are some where they just don't record the problem classes or there's just certain things they don't record Mm -hmm. so I don't have access to that at all which is annoying Um, but it'll be like one thing every month so I find that generally maths has been fine obviously I can't speak about other courses but Mm -hmm. it'll be different based on your disability and based on the accommodations that you want.
0: Oh absolutely yeah.
1: With music I'm assuming you've got quite small classes as well.
0: Oh, yeah. So, I mean, I think my biggest class is probably, well, my biggest class is the one that everyone in the year is in. And my year is about 80 people, eight zero um, for our class. And I know that that is so much smaller than STEM subjects. Um, And we're very lucky to have a small department. I think it's actually a good thing because just like the ratio of academics to students is much better so it often means that if you need something if some if one person doesn't reply to your email you can go to somebody else and if they don't reply you can go to another person and you will get a response whereas I guess that must be a lot more difficult in stem
1: I find that I tend to get responses from like main lecturers if you have a question I think the main issue is people not knowing each other Because it's such a, because in our largest ones, we might have like three to four hundred people. Wow. Your lecturer doesn't know you. They don't know your face. They don't know anything about you. Even if you have them as your tutorial leader, because we're wearing masks, they then still don't really know you. But if you only have 80 of you, you probably will have that lecturer at some point and you probably will get to know them. Um, Oh,
0: absolutely. So it
1: makes it a lot nicer.
0: Oh, yeah. It feels like we have a lot better, like, working relationship with our lecturers simply because they, like, if we see them in the street, they will always say hello. Um, they recognise who we are and things and will often stop and have a chat. Like, um, I went to the theatre the other day and two of my lecturers were at the theatre and we had a little chat during the interval. And it's just really nice to be able to do that kind of thing. And it it makes the whole experience of being at university a lot easier when you have that sort of, like, personal connection with with your lecturers
1: yeah whereas I feel a lot more a lot more distant (laughs) even our um even our like tutorial leaders sometimes can feel a bit distant because it just feels like there's such a big gap between like us and them based on Mm, like knowledge but then also based on actual physical distance in the lecture theatre um so yeah it's it I think having spoken to other people doing I have a friend that does physics at Cardiff there's like 90 people in her year I think oh, so in oh, that wow. case it's way more like on your kind of level but still mm. doing your stem and I think based on what she said as well like it's a very similar kind of idea of if you have a smaller course there's it's a lot more personable with the lecturers and with the teachers
0: mm, and it's really nice as well there's one particular um well a couple of lecturers who for instance noticed that I um I'd missed a lecture or I'd missed a couple of lectures. And they just emailed me and just said, I hope everything's okay. If you need anything, just let me know. And it's really nice for them to do that. And I mean uh the lecturers in, in music generally speaking are, are pretty good and they're all such great, you know, people. Um but it's really nice to know that you are supported in in like so many different ways in, in my department.
1: Yeah. You're also a laid law scholar. Yes. That sounds super interesting. I know I looked a little bit um for maths, but I think laid law's a strange one in terms of obviously the like topics they give you, and then they can be quite specific or they can be kind of vague. Did you go with a topic that they pre-gave or did you go with a topic and say, Hey, I wanna research this?
0: I <laughs> I only got involved like ten days before the deadline. Um, because somebody said to me, Oh, I are you signing up for this thing? This looks like it would be quite interesting to do. And I was like, yeah, sure. Okay, that doesn't sound hard. Write a proposal for something. I had an idea, so I thought I'd run with that. And then sort of about five days before submission, the same person messaged me and said, oh, how are you getting on with all of the questions? And I was like, what questions?" I I had no idea that there were questions. And there were sort of 20 questions to answer about like your career prospects and what you wanted to do with your life. So I ended up doing that quite horribly. That sounds in quite five ex- days.
1: Ex- like existential. Like, what do you want yeah, to do with your life?
0: <laughs> yeah, it was a little bit. It was like, where do you see yourself in in five to ten years' time? And, uh, <laughs> that's just a really big question. <laughs> um, so I think I said something like, I would like to be doing a PhD, which I would, but just the whole existential nature of it was was a lot. But um, so I've. I did my first uh, summer with them last year and I did research with one of the academics in my department basically. So I spent six weeks doing research on Clara Schumann's piano concerto. She is one of the many people who has a more famous husband and so gets ignored by history basically. Her husband really famous did a lot of work in Germany as a composer in the 19th century but she was also a composer she was also a performer and then nobody paid any attention to her despite her being literally a child prodigy like she was aged like I think it was eight and ten she started performing publicly so And she kept doing this right up until like her husband died and she'd had many children. She's really cool. But um, her piano concerto, nobody had really written anything about. Um, I could count on one hand how many papers there are. Whereas if you looked at like a Mozart piano concerto, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of them. And they all basically say the same thing. So I thought I'm just going to do something a bit different. So that's what I spent my summer doing last year. And it was really, really fun. Um, really produ- productive. Um, I did find it a bit difficult initially with some of the like, so there are two sort of different aspects to the laid law program. There's like research, there's leadership. Um, and then there's like leadership training and then what's called leadership in action. So the research. But I didn't have any problems with because I did it all pretty much remotely meeting once a week with my supervisor to say, how are you getting on with the work? Can you send me another draft kind of thing? And that worked really well. And then the leadership in action, sorry, the leadership training um, was a little bit more difficult because they were often requiring in-person attendance, which I could not do because I was at one point I was in another part of the country and then I had to have surgery, um, in June last year, which meant that I, like, I couldn't travel for six weeks anywhere regardless. And then it took probably about another six months after that for me to heal properly and be able to lift things and move around and that kind of thing. Um, and the Laidlaw program were initially quite resistant to me saying, I have a disability. there are accommodations I need you to make. I signed up for this um you know the scholarship with the idea that I would not be discriminated against because of my um class gender um disability, and then initially, it was very difficult where they didn't want me to do things online. Just because they thought, you know, if everyone else can do it in line, why can't he? Um And that was really, really frustrating. And I was threatened with um being removed from the cohort for saying things like this. Um Being told that I would be put back a year in my project or be removed from the scholarship completely, which was really, really difficult because I was... At the time I was hearing all of this, I'd just come out of surgery. I was about to start research and I was really excited because I getting to research something that I love is fantastic. It's a really excellent opportunity and I I enjoyed it immensely, but it was very stressful to have to deal with all of that. I mean, eventually they said, okay, yeah, you can in- attend some things virtually, but they did not make it easy for me, but having had that discussion with the leaders of the team and talked to them about how uh, difficult it is to be a disabled person in Durham and not have your needs accommodated for. They have now made at least everything up until now um, available virtually which is great. I mean it makes complete sense because if there is somebody who's got Covid and they're isolating it means that They can still attend the thing if they're well enough to. But also for people like me who, like I said, I don't go to lectures in person. I sometimes go to seminars in person, but that's quite rare. It just makes life a lot easier if you know that I I don't have to expend a load of energy getting ready to go out of my house, make sure I've got everything with me, go to the place, sit there and do the task and then come back again it's a big load of energy that that would take for me to do that. So it was nice that they eventually were a bit more accommodating. However, I think we've got an in-person, a compulsory in-person event coming up soon, which I'm going to have to talk to them about and hope that they can also make it virtual. Just I don't think that it should be an afterthought with joining an event virtually. I think this is a, a general thing with the university moving forward, because it's so important for people to know that, regardless of their disability or regardless of their situation, they can always access their education that I mean quite frankly, we are paying for it. There's no reason why we shouldn't be able to access it, but it should it shouldn't just be you know the the lecturer turns up for the lecture, somebody has emailed the day before saying. I'm really sorry, I can't attend in person, could you set up a Zoom link? And the lecturer doesn't do that at all. Um, it needs to be something that is just part of the way of life now. Um, because there are still people who are shielding. There are still people who are not comfortable going into various departments because it's it can be quite scary seeing so many people. I mean, just walking through town there are so many people out and about compared to like a year ago and I really hope that the university continues to make sure that everything is as accessible as possible so that every student can access our education no matter where they are and just say make it normal to have zoom links for every lecture every seminar
1: yeah, I think it's definitely a very large mental load when it comes to disabilities and this constant having to advocate for yourself and almost argue with everyone and anyone around you. Absolutely. That just is such a stress and such an annoyance. I know I've had a real issue with my medication recently. And coming to the end, I needed to be switched over to NHS because I've been on this one for a while now, so I can. And it makes it like £70 cheaper, so I would like oh. that. Yes. Um, <laughs> The clinic I was with didn't send over my shared care agreement for about three weeks. Um, They just didn't do it. And it's it's an email that they just have to click send on. So I was calling them up every day, calling up the GP to see if they had got it. And it's just saying that I had an exam last week. I didn't want to do that. I was sick. I was still having to do it because it's just another thing to think about the whole time. And now it's also, okay. well, now I've got this medication that's in Durham. But I'm not gonna be in Durham the next time it comes in. So I've got to call them again to be like, why well, need you to send it to a different pharmacy? And it's just a constant thing of every month I'm gonna to have to think about, okay, where am I when this runs out? Yeah. Where am absolutely. I when it restarts? How how far in advance are they gonna to have to send it? And it's something that people don't have to think about. And obviously, if you're not on medication, if you are on medication, you might be on multiple, because if you have a mm. disability, it tends to be that you have quite a few disabilities. You don't tend yeah. to have one, they come in pairs and so then you might have multiple or it might be that you know you have your walking stick so you need to think about well if I have a mobility aid and I'm traveling somewhere am I going to have to store it somewhere am I going to have to have like a way to get around if I'm tra- if I'm going to a different country then am I going to be allowed to take this on a plane because sometimes the TSA can be really mean and they're like no we don't want you taking on certain things.
0: Yeah, yeah I've had that worry because um, I'm going Tomorrow, I'm going away to Hamburg uh, for the Steinway project where we, uh, Durham University is getting a load of new pianos, basically, and they've asked some people to go over to Germany to pick out the pianos that they they want. But I'm really worried about what's going to happen at airport security um, because I will have medication with me and I will have my mobility aid. And I'm like, I'm almost at the point of, do I even... Bring my mobility aid and just make it more difficult because I don't want to risk losing it and having to buy another one. Yeah, because it's 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 the kind of thing that most people don't even have to think about. You know, like when you're going away, there's an extra step that you have to think about. Like, do I have my medication? What if I get stuck in a different country for you know a week have I got enough medication with me so that everything will be okay do I have all of the right documents to make sure that if somebody says why have you got this drug with you you can say here is the piece of paper that says that I'm allowed it and it's just like that extra level as you were saying that extra level of thinking that has to go into every day everyday life is is different
1: yeah 'Cause I I mean, because of my medication it lasts all day. If I take it later, I don't go to sleep. So I always I never get a lion. I have to wake up every day at eight. And even though yeah. it's a good it's a good habit to get into, it's still like a I would like a lion. <laughs> <laughs> I don't wanna have to wake up at eight. So even just like day to day, there are just these little things that you're like, I really don't wanna have to wake up today at eight, but I have to.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and it like it makes such a huge difference. i, I don't only sort of really noticed this recently, like what time you... For me, um, because I can take my medication, it's meant to be like when you wake up. But often I wake up like and I get the time I wake up and the time I get up are very different because I often work from my bed just so that I don't have to use too much energy getting out of bed, going for a shower, you know, doing all of that stuff. And I've noticed like it does actually make a difference whether I take my medication when I get out of bed and get up or whether I take it when I wake up and there's a huge difference in how my day will change depending on that and even like even an hour's difference from the day before can make a huge difference and it's just like those kind of things that most people don't have to think about you know the time that they take a medication in order for them to function it's not something they have to do.
1: Yeah, because what, and I don't know if you'd obviously want me to ask and cut this out, what medications do you take? Do you take one for like anxiety, depression and?
0: So I take, um, I don't mind if you keep this in or not. Um, oh,
1: OK. <laughs>
0: um, so I take an antidepressant and I take uh, a beta blocker. Um, That beta blocker is for my heart. It slows your heart rate down Um. Uh, and sorts out some blood pressure things, basically.
1: Yeah, because I read on the NHS that they sometimes they can prescribe kind of an antidepressant for the pot. So I thought maybe those yeah branches, are one and the same, or are they different?
0: <laughs> so that's a that's the weird thing is that I had I like I used to get really bad anxiety attacks like quite frequently, and then I got put on this heart medication, and then like six months later I was like, hmm, I haven't had an anxiety attack in a while. That seems really <laughs> weird. And then I thought, I'm just going to Google this medication that they've put me on. And it turns out I had no idea, but they use beta blockers to treat anxiety for the same reason that it lowers heart rate. It stabilizes you. And I had no idea that it was going to have that extra effect. So that was quite nice. But yeah, it's yeah. a nice
1: benefit when they when it removes an issue.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. And it just means like I don't have to take extra medication. Yeah. Um, Those are the Two main ones that I take, and it just makes things a lot easier because there was a point where it's like taking four or five different medications just to try and control everything, and now that I've got it down to two, it's it's a mm, lot nicer. It, it's so good because
1: I find with mine, I take um, I take my ADHD medication, and then I also take the pill because I have terrible, terrible periods, and I take oh, that in the geez. evening, and then I take. My ADHD medication in the morning, so it's kind of like a nice wake up, take this one, go to sleep, take that one. Yeah, so it's a bit nicer. But obviously, some people might take them together. Um, progesterone for enough does actually make you a little bit more tired. That was a top tip from my mum. Going Not on it. her HRT that. was that if you take it in the evening, it will make you a little bit more sleepy. So I switched mine round so that I would get a nice little like sleepy. Huh,
0: I had no idea about that. Yeah, and actually, as part of as part of my Treatment for POTS initially, but because I'm trans uh, and this was before I had like medically transitioned and started taking testosterone or anything, they thought that it was something to do with my menstrual cycle. So they decided to put me on the pill, and it made literally everything worse. And it meant that I had like I had migraines for like five days at a time, and the number of cis men that you see at a GP surgery is so frustrating as in like it, as a doctor i mean um because they do not understand what is going on and they're like oh you feel a bit funny it must be your period um rather than it could be you know literally anything else you have so many other things uh yeah that... i
1: found my periods were so heavy i was going through i don't this is a bit tmi to be fair but i was going through the thickest pad you could have every hour bang new one Whoa. it was insane it was getting to a really extreme level and i yeah. my first period was 2 weeks long
0: oh my god
1: and so it was really just not okay that so i kept going so back difficult. and i would skip and luckily most of the time they were really irregular as well so i literally mm. had like one and didn't have another one for a year lovely one didn't have another one for 3 months so it was kind of like a oh that's really bad but then it's fine for a few months <laughs> so when i was when i had it eventually it was four days but it was like the same amount of blood from those 12 days in four yeah. so then it was an extreme level and so i would yeah. literally on a one day i would get up go like hot water bottle asleep in bed the whole day could not do anything so i was actually mm-hmm. missing like whole days because of that and i remember going to see the doctor and he was like oh yeah i'll just give you some iron because it doesn't sound too bad and i thought oh yeah, my, oh God. my- and then eventually, I actually went to the sexual health clinic and I lied. And I just said, Yes, I'm having sex. I have a boyfriend. I've had one for a year. Please just give me this. And mm. they did. Because that was all it took. Because I was like, If I can't get it from the GP, I might as well just go to the sexual health clinic.
0: Yeah. It's so ridiculous. Like the lengths you have to go to to just get something sorted like that. It's ridiculous.
1: Yeah. Um, but the mm. pill is one of the medications where I think, because it's so dependent on your levels, of estrogen, progesterone, all of those other hormones in your body, the, the, the symptoms you get are so extreme based on the one. The first one I mm. had made me depressed for about two weeks. I lost about, I want to say about five kilos in three weeks because oh I just wasn't gosh. eating. Um, mm-hmm. Because for, with depression, some people will overeat, some people will undereat. It just depends on your relationship mm-hmm. with food. I tend to just stop eating. So I came off that one. and then went on the same one that a lot of people in my family on, and that's been completely fine. And I've not had any side effects with that. But when you go in again, they were like, oh, we'll just put you on one with a lower estrogen dose. And I was like, no, get rid of the estrogen, just do progesterone. Let's go with that one. Mm -hmm. But it felt like you're a bit of a guinea pig at first. And I feel like this could be the way with a lot of medications is that they're like, Mm -hmm. hey, we just want to like shuffle it around to see. And actually, it's like as soon as you get one just stick with that one, just
0: Mm -hmm, absolutely gives
1: you little to know just stay with that because they will just try and be like let's just see a little bit here and there
0: yeah and also like they will automatically put you on whatever the cheapest is like and that's probably not going to work for you like for the vast majority of people the sort of catch-all drug that they use doesn't work Um, particularly like with depression in in young people they will often put you on citalopram which can make things quite a lot worse very very quickly and people don't don't know to expect this and they're like I'm on this drug which should be helping but actually I don't think I've ever felt worse
1: and then that just puts them off all medication and then they're just like well I don't want to take anything which is so sad because it's like some things can help it's just finding the right one but also you don't want to feel like a guinea pig and say well Mm. let's just try all of them
0: yeah absolutely and like I had the same problem when I went on testosterone um I had to try like several different brands uh of of the gel that I was using before one worked and it again it felt like this this idea of like being a guinea pig and not really knowing what what was going on, and just people people ignoring like your disability in one aspect to try and solve another thing, um, like like you, it, there were just lots of things, lots of side effects that I got when I first started that I didn't know about, um, and lots of them were things like making my chronic fatigue worse, which in my brain didn't make any sense. Uh, But like with hindsight, makes complete sense. But if somebody had just said, you have gone on testosterone, therefore your body is working harder because it is making more muscle, making more everything, basically. You're going to feel tired as a result of that. It's going to make things worse. If somebody had just said that to me, that would have made like the hugest difference
1: yeah i think that's a big issue in the medical community is that often the issue is looked at from such a
0: spotlight Blinkness.
1: here's yeah blink and view like they just look at this one issue and they don't look at actually here's all your issues together mm. let's see what's going on here because in a way if if they do i know with adhd and women often it also causes endometriosis so actually Whoa. that could have been something I could have had and I still don't know if I do or don't. But if they had, obviously I didn't know I had that when I was mm. getting into my period. But actually, if if they did, maybe that could have been like a thing of like, hey, this is coming up and that's a link. But mm. because they don't look at the links and they don't look at kind of everything going on and how it combines together, mm. they do miss a lot of stuff.
0: Yeah, there's absolutely like no idea about how different things interact Like you go in and you say, this is the one problem that I have. And they're like, okay, I will treat that one problem. But then they don't realise that by doing that, it has a negative effect on something else or it's going to make something else worse. Or there are just things that they didn't even consider. It's really difficult.
1: Yeah. And I think that's where, especially if you're on medication, you need to make sure that you know what's going to affect that medication. Because obviously, if they if they give you something and that could cancel out or that could actually cause even worse side effects that maybe could be detrimental to health or life then you need to make sure that you know what you're getting on and what the the specific ones that you know I think with the ADHD medication there's certain co- like cold things that if you take it will cancel out so yeah. that's something that I need to if I ever got a cold I would have to look up mm. does this work with my medication mm mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I have the same thing with my heart medication that I didn't know initially, but I have to be careful about the types of painkillers I take. And with my carpal tunnel syndrome, um, I at one point was taking a lot of painkillers because it was very painful. But I now I can't take ibuprofen or any of that branch of painkillers at all. So that's a, big, um,
1: that's a big group.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I have to be really careful. Like if I go into hospital they will often try and like give you ibuprofen and I I, I can't have that because what will happen is my heart rate will drop too low and my blood pressure will also drop too low um, and that's a really big risk for me. But I didn't know that when I was initially going on the medication and I'm not saying that necessarily I wouldn't would have chosen not to take it but it would have certainly informed my decision if I had known that there were these interactions between other drugs. It does make a huge difference.
1: Yeah. I think also often the when you're at the doctors, they say, hey, we're going to put you on this. There's no options. There's no... So even if you had looked into it and you're like, actually, that one like, would mess me up with ibuprofen, they'd still be like, oh, but this is the only one we have. And often Absolutely. it's kind of like, their mm-hmm. way or you're out. And mm-hmm, I
0: think that's, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> and also, like, as soon as you say, oh, I've done a bit of reading, they're like, oh, but you're not a qualified medical doctor. You can't know anything. There's no way that you could have, you know, looked at other people's experiences and gone, oh, this is going to not work out for me. They just immediately dismiss you.
1: Yeah, I think obviously you can get the hypochondriacs that are mm. researching everything. They're like, I have cancer. And it's like, no, you, you probably don't. But I definitely think if someone comes to you with a concern, you should always be like, let's talk through these concerns.
0: Absolutely.
1: I think that is the, the role of the doctor. But unfortunately, a lot of the times they're kind of just like, here you go. <laughs> yeah
0: and to be fair to them oftentimes it's not like that specific person's fault
1: often it's the clinic or it's like the overall kind of uh, regulations of the practice so it's not really their decision
0: um but it, it makes it very difficult for people who you know you to go to a GP and say I have this issue it is making my life more difficult it's a really vulnerable thing to do and then for somebody to say to you, ah, oh, no, it can't be that bad, makes you question everything that you thought you'd been feeling. Like, was I really feeling this? Did it really hurt that much? And that can put off so many people from accessing any kind of healthcare when they need it, which is why so many people are like, oh, I didn't realize that it wasn't normal to have this happen to me. Um, because they just haven't tried to talk about it with a doctor because they've had such a negative experience.
1: Yeah and I think that's why disability and I'm sure as a trans person you can link that to kind of LGBT plus identity and these kind of issues and like long-term health conditions can tie Mm. in so strongly to your identity because you do have to work really hard to get these diagnoses. You have to work a lot and you have to do so much just to get a piece of paper to say, yes, I think you have X, Y, Z.
0: Oh, yeah. And just like the I, I have been trying now for three or four years to get a piece of paper from my GP that just says. He has these conditions. Here is a list. This is how it affects him in everyday life. And they will not give it to me. And as a result, it means that I can only access certain aspects of disability support. Because on record, it says I have dyspraxia.
1: But nothing else.
0: But nothing else. The GP in Durham doesn't believe I have this heart condition that got diagnosed.
1: Uh, gosh. Because even oh. with um, carpal tunnel, you think that you would get a lot more kind of physical access in terms of potentially getting a scribe, potentially getting kind of things to do with your laptop, like hand, like rest and things like that. Like there's a lot of things that if you had dyspraxia only... They would just kind of be like, well, you don't need any of this physical stuff. So let's only ask you these questions.
0: Pretty much. Yeah. Um, and it's 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 frustrating because. I mean, the G- the GP is prescribing me medication for a heart condition that he doesn't that re- really have that they don't seem to want to acknowledge. And it's just it doesn't make any sense to me. But like the whole idea around you must have This one piece of paper from only one type of medical professional makes it so inaccessible to get any support, because that's what the university will always say, is that they'll be like, oh, yeah, you can always come to us for support. But then the first thing they'll say is, well, do you have a piece of paper from this one specific type of person?
1: I know someone who has autism, but they were diagnosed at about 10 by a Mm -hmm. therapist. That doesn't count under yep. DS, but they it does count for DSAs. So they get all the DSA stuff, but they don't get any support from the main university. So even yes. though the government's like, "Yes, we accept you as an autistic person," the university's like, "No, you're not good enough." Mm-mm-mm. Even though oh, it's, it's been so since ten years old.
0: <laughs> it, it's it's just unbelievable the the lengths that some of us have to go through just to yeah just to be like accepted and acknowledged but also like going back to like the idea about identity it's really fascinating looking at the intersections between neurodiversity and gender diversity
1: yeah there's much higher rates of um lgbt plus in the neurodiverse community i know that there's a lot much higher and also
0: the other way around so um i happen to know someone who used to work at the gender identity clinic in London at Charing Cross and said that about 10 times the average number of people would have autistic traits or some kind of neurodiverse traits who were also trans and that's that's just such an interesting statistic to me that there is this correlation probably between neurodiversity and gender diversity and it just makes me it makes me wonder whether there's you know there's there's more to yeah, that. Is there's,
1: it... I wonder if there's a biological link but then I also wonder if it's just a link between people who are already excluded from society being like well if you're going to exclude me anyway I'm going to live my true self and just not really care. <laughs> I do wonder mm-hmm. if it's a link between kind of a social one or if it's a biological one.
0: Yeah. So it has been hypothesized that there actually is a genetic link between neurodiversity, chronic medical conditions and gender diversity. And it is it has been hypothesized that it's all caused by one gene. Uh, So it's called RCCX theory. And it basically says that It seems really odd that there is a higher proportion of people who are have all three (laughs) have all of these things, yeah, and it all happens to intersect like that. Seems that seems quite odd, and there is definitely a link between the three of them. And there are some groups of scientists now trying to work out whether it's a a a gene thing. So this got developed like in the last couple of years. It's quite a new area of study but it could be really interesting because it could explain why all of these different things intersect um which is really exciting
1: yeah and i think on that biological note we will finish this episode so thank you for listening if you got this far and our instagram is at disability discussions if you want to interact or if you want to ask any questions bye
0: Purple radio podcasts